two, three, four. In this podcast, you will only hear Knights of Vader, Knights of Vader, includes but is not led to who talk of Star Wars, not Reagans. We can't truly prepare for the junk that follows this song, but hey, we give it a try. So here's the Knights of Vader. Crystal Fox reports they are divided. For equal sequel, hate and love they fight I know that we are just musicians hired. And their time is up, so here's the Knights of Vader. Most impressive. A big thank you to An Inspiriority Complex for providing our theme song. It is 7 11 2019. Had to get that in there, folks. Sorry. I hope you got your free Slurpee. My name is Zach Weber. And guess what, folks? It is a solo Knights of Vader episode. So it is a Knight of Vader. Yeah. But we're going to throw you all for a loop. There's no book review. What? I know it's been a while since we've had a mono mono conversation without a book being the topic, but here we are. But as you probably know by reading this week's episode, we are getting into the weeds of the glorious, glorious world of box office. And that's why you're having just me this week, because you know what? I was, I was throwing some ideas out there with Sanger, and we have a pretty – I think we have a pretty exciting episode planned for next week. Going back to the thing we were kind of starting toward the beginning of the year without giving it away. And everybody needed a little bit of prep time on that. Plus, this topic is more of a Zach topic. It's, you know, as fun as it is talking about box office numbers. You can only spew those at people so long and hear them go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Until you realize you're really being like a sadist and you're, and you're forcing your weird perversions on people. So I figure it's best just that, you know what, it's just you and I, the listener. We're keeping it personal this week. So with that being said... We are going to delve into the world of box office prognostication under the lens of the rise of Skywalker. I guess you're wondering, what makes me an expert on the box office? You're just some jerk that runs a third-rate Star Wars podcast and a fourth-rate movie podcast. What do you know about box office other than being one of those people that can read box office mojo? Well, I'm glad you asked, Fred, because... I've been following the box office like religiously ever since like the summer of 2008 with stuff like Star Wars, The Clone Wars, the animated movie. I can still remember back when I was visiting my grandma during the summer of 2009 and I was dying to know whether Terminator Salvation beat Night at the Museum 2, Battle of the Smithsonian at the box office in May of 2009. And I was furiously trying to connect with her dial up like internet connection, trying to see like, oh man, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? And then when Avatar came out, which I think at this point I've laid out my Avatar story so many times, and then during the summer of 2010 where there was a movie poster site that had a contest every weekend and where you had to guess which film would get – like which film opening that week would have the high – or like would have like guessed the box office gross of it. And I won the contest 10 times in a row, and they had to stop having the contest because of me, possibly one of my greatest crowning achievements. And – that's pretty much why I'm a box office amateur expert. Not going to say I'm an expert because I don't have a degree in it, but I am an amateur expert in it. And this is why you should trust my opinion, but hey, take it with a grain of salt. So as we all know at this point, the narrative going around the Star Wars fan base is that Disney Star Wars is a flop. None of the movies have made money, zero money. 
you know, you went to the movie theater that opening night and there are tons of people. They all got let in for free. Disney and Kathleen Kennedy. I'm not sure, but I, I'm not sure if you saw her, but I know I did. Kathleen Kennedy was outside my theater handing out vouchers. Uh, her and JJ are really quick, especially Ruin Johnson. Ruin Johnson was outside all the theaters, much like Luke. He was projecting himself, giving out free vouchers, everybody, because nobody paid to see any Disney Star Wars movies. And so I just want to get that out of the way. All these films are flops. And Disney Star Wars is a sham. It's a fraud. The $4 billion went up in smoke. The stock price is tanked. The company's going under. I just bought Mickey's car for like wholesale at the auction. The entire kingdom is underwater. All joking aside now, uh, we're going to get into the box office. And just to refresh everybody's memories, I'm going to go through the box office totals of the sequel trilogy films. And maybe, maybe not. We'll get into like the prequels in the original trilogy. But here are the totals for... We're gonna start. We're gonna start in reverse chronological order. S- Solo has made two hundred and thirteen dollars domestic and three hundred and ninety-two worldwide. That still stings. Almost a year later, the next film, The Last Jedi, grossed six hundred and twenty million dollars domestic in the U.S. and one point three billion dollars worldwide. Rogue One, a Star Wars story, grossed. million domestic, and by domestic I mean North America, United States, and Canada, and a billion dollars worldwide. Yes, folks, everybody's favorite Star Wars film, Rogue One, grossed less than the worst Star Wars film ever made, The Last Jedi. Funny how narratives fall apart when facts are introduced. And then after that, we have The Force Awakens, which grossed $936 million domestic, still holding on to the title of the highest grossing film in North America, and $2 billion worldwide. So there can actually be an argument made that Rogue One might be the most hated Star Wars film because the grosses went down by 50%, went down by half. So you can make that argument, Rogue One, by just sheer relative gains, is the the most hated Star Wars film because it caused it to go down by half. But hey, we don't want to spin narratives on this podcast. Now that I think about it, we'll get into the prequel stuff later on because it does play a role in this when it comes to some of the calculations. So with that being said, we're going to sit there now kind of get into like with the rise of Skywalker. I was on YouTube today looking up, I don't know how I even came across it. I was looking up some Star Wars Galaxy's Edge stuff because I know there's another narrative around there that Galaxy's Edge is a bomb. Disney's lost $3 trillion on that. They're giving away the Kyber crystals for free. Holocrons just litter the grounds of Disneyland. The feral cats are sitting there playing with the Holocrons. It's a mess. Um, and so I, I saw something along the lines that, like, oh, uh, something, something with the box office. And I'm like, okay. Let me look at this and do some calculations because I'm not sure how many know this, but when it comes to this, it's funny when look when analyzing how the rise of Skywalker might do box office wise, it's actually Star Wars itself gives a rather apt comparison because we're dealing with three different trilogies. And it's interesting that how the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy box office wise, like the dip between like the first film, the second film, then the, the third film. They all kind of did the same kind of like percentage drop and then rebound from the first, second to third film. And it actually lays out a pretty good roadmap to how the Rise of Skywalker might actually play out. So I'm going to get that to you right now. If you look at the drop in box office from Star Wars 1977, 
which grossed, and, and I guess you'd say at this point, I am solely focused. When, when I'm doing these calculations on what the rise of Skywalker might do, I'm looking at solely of the lens of the domestic box office. Um, it's really hard to get a read internationally, uh, going back to like stuff from the prequels and the original trilogy with Star Wars, because that the inter- the international box office really has blown up in the last decade. So it wouldn't be a fair apples to apples comparison there, and I don't want to give you erroneous information. Or much like the survey episode, I don't want to build my foundation on the snowball effect or the or the box office equivalent of the snowball effect. I don't want it to melt. Star Wars 1977 grossed $307 million. That is unadjusted for inflation. And I know the original Star Wars, Lucas released that film a dozen times. I'm not even counting the special editions. All talk of box office for the original trilogy does not include the special editions because they're their own like re-release. They're their own like subset in the box office on Box Office Mojo. So we're not even going to get into those. Unadjusted for inflation, Star Wars grossed $307 million. Empire Strikes Back grossed $209 million. Again, unadjusted for inflation, not counting counting the many re-releases during the 80s, but not counting the special editions. So once again, if we wanted to spin BS narratives, we could say The Empire Strikes Back is the worst Star Wars film because it made the least amount of money out of the original trilogy because Return of the Jedi made $252 million. So clearly, by that estimation, Empire's the the weak point, so it must be the most hated. But looking at that, though, it actually you figure, hmm, that's interesting. Because if you do the percentage calculation from Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, there was a dip in grosses of 32%. Specifically 31.9, but we're going to round up. But if you look at from Star Wars to Return of the Jedi... Actually, the box office dip was only 17.8 or 18%. So there's a, you can see now that the third film picks up a little bit of slack from the second film, but still cannot top the first film. And this becomes even more profound when you look at the grosses of the prequel trilogy. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace grossed $431 million, and that doesn't include the 3D re-release. Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones, grossed $302 million. And Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, grossed $380 million. Revenge of the Sith is the only Star Wars film to never be re-released or have an alternate cut. Every other Star Wars film, excluding the Disney era, have had a re-release and an alternate cut. Go figure. Anyway, though, if you look at the dip from The Phantom Menace to Attack of the Clones... There was a 29.9% drop. And then you look at the Phantom Menace to Revenge of the Sith, there was only a 11.8% drop. So, going back to our original numbers, if you look at the drop between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, that was a 32% drop. And if you go back to the drop between the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, there was a 30% drop. Only two percentage points difference in how the first film performed relative to the second film the saga performed. And remember that, folks. That 30% will play a big part when we compare what The Force Awakens does with The Last Jedi. If you go back and look at what The Phantom Menace did relative to Revenge of the Sith, Revenge it only dipped 11.8%. And if you look at what Star Wars did relative to Return of the Jedi, it only dipped 17.8%, which is a 6 point a six percentage point difference. Not a huge discrepancy there, not a huge range. Based on what now I've laid out to you, you can see we have a pretty good pattern in determining 
how the Rise of Skywalker might be able to perform domestically come this December. Because I know it's been a big thing with a lot of people, again, in the Knights of Vader Facebook group, which I highly recommend you join because we have a lot of fun in there now. We actually have a nice group of people now. It's not just uh, Sanger, Jim, and I. We actually have some fun discussions. There's there's banter. There's, there's actually a few people at the Knights of Vader Cafe. And uh, disclaimer for Pork Night, the Knights of Vader Cafe is a separate entity from the Cinemodies restaurant for the three of you that listen to Cinemodies. But I know a lot of people have been asking, like, can the Rise of Skywalker beat Avengers Endgame? And I know a lot of people are probably looking at that in the guise of internationally. And I'll, I'll get to my conclusions toward the end of this. But let, for the most part, I'm going to be looking at it in domestic terms. So, getting to the sequel trilogy. And Solo and Rogue One aren't going to play a role much in this because they are outside the saga bounds of the films that we're analyzing here. But if you look... The Force Awakens, like I said before, made $936 million, and The Last Jedi made $620. If you look at that drop, that's a 33.8% drop, which, going back to our other numbers of drops from the first film to the second film of the saga, Star Wars The Empire did 32%, Phantom Mass The Clones did 30%, and Force Awakens The Last Jedi was 34 Yes, it is the steepest drop of the three, but to be fair— Four percentage points in the grand scheme of things, I don't consider a catastrophic drop-off. It's not an outlier when it comes to looking at this sort of box office data. You're probably thinking now, all right, what the hell does any of this mean to the rise of Skywalker? It's like, Zach, I know you're lying to me. I know The Last Jedi was a dud. I saw Kathy Kennedy there. She handed me my ticket walking into the theater. She begged me not to leave a zero-star review on Rotten Tomatoes. But hey, let's press on forward. Looking at the drop from the first film of the saga to the last film of the saga, based on the prior numbers, Rise of Skywalker is going to do anywhere from have a 12% drop in box office to an 18% drop in box office from what the first film made. Once again, and I, I'm only repeating this so everybody can follow along, Force Awakens made $936 million domestic. If it only has a 12% drop it will probably make around $826 million. Let me repeat that. If it follows a pattern similarly to what the prequels did from Phantom Menace to Sith, it will only experience around 12% drop and get to $826 million. But if it experiences a drop to Star Wars to Return of the Jedi, which was an 18% drop, it will only make $770 million domestic. From what the math shows that the data proves, The Rise of Skywalker will most likely make anywhere from $770 million domestic to $826. And for those of you who do not have your box office mojo widget on your desktop of your computer or your smartphone, Avengers Endgame is currently at $849 million in the U.S. And that includes a stupid, like, We Love You 3000 re-release they did like a month. Or by the time you're hearing, it's probably three weeks to a month ago. So there are some factors in there. There are things that we can't account for. Well, now we're going to get into a little bit more of the, the surroundings or the, the box office arena of both 2015 and 2017 compared to what the arena of 2019 holds for The Rise of Skywalker. Let's look at the box office arena The Force Awakens went into. There's this very int- I think I've talked about it a couple of times on the podcast, but there was this very interesting phenomenon that happened in like the fall of 2015 with the box office. 
And I kind of equate it to almost like a tsunami effect with The Force Awakens, was that I remember, I think this was like in the late summer of 2015, maybe early fall, it was Google or Fandango or one of those sites put out like a poll being like, what fall, like winter movie are you most excited for? And I think it was Hunger Games Catching Fire 2 that had like, or maybe that's what it's called. What was the third Hunger Games movie called? Or the fourth Hunger Games movie. Oh my God, they made four of them. Uh, Not Catching Fire, that was the second one. Mockingjay, Mockingjay Part 2, there you go. It was like Mockingjay Part 2 has like 50%. Force Awakens has like 23. And like in all these, like you had all these like BS headlines before it became a mainstay for poor Star Wars on the internet. It was like, oh, Star Wars in trouble? Hunger Games is proving a, a bigger fan favorite than the return of this of the lifelong saga. And it's like, no, folks. If Jurassic World can make like 200-something million dollars off regurgitating the premise of the first film, there ain't no way that it, Star Wars has less hype than that movie. And if you look at the grosses of a lot of popular movies that came out in November, specifically Spectre, James Bond Spectre, and Mockingjay Part 2, both of those films underperformed compared to what box office analysts were expecting. And there was this weird thing that kind of happened where people were almost, I don't want to say, again, this is all anecdotal evidence. I have no concrete data like I did before to back this up with. It's as if people were deliberately just kind of sitting on their hands waiting for The Force Awakens to come out. November was really, not that it was a bad month, both Spectre and Mockingjay Part 2 made money. But I know from like Skyfall, Spectre took a dip box office wise. And Mockingjay Part 2 was kind of like compared to the highs of the first two Hunger Games films, it, it did not do well. And Force Awakens comes out December 18th, and its only competition for the most part was, you're going to love this one, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the road chip. I'm pretty sure that's the greatest film of all time voted by AFI and Sisters, which I think is an Amy Poehler, Tina Fey comedy, but I could be wrong. Force Awakens opens at $247 million opening weekend, a record that nobody thought would be beaten anytime soon. Little did we know what the uh, can of uh, worms endgame would be, but it held the record for three years. Next weekend, the competition for The Force Awakens was. Daddy's Home, the Mark Wahlberg, Will Ferrell comedy, and Joy, starring Jennifer Lawrence. Not exactly lighting up the box office or providing any serious competition to The Force Awakens. And it's worth noting that The Force Awakens still holds the record for the highest grossing second weekend of a movie at $149 million. Funny, most movies would die for that sort of total. Force Awakens did that in its second weekend. If you continue to look at the weekends, like January 1st to 3rd, January 8th through 10th, basically for the next month, it wasn't until January 15th that The Force Awakens was finally usurped from its number one spot at the box office, where it was beaten by Ride Along 2, the Kevin Hart film. But it still, it The Force Awakens was still making money, and it had no serious competition. It really, there was no other genre film. There was no other blockbuster in that time slot, or that spot of the uh, calendar to really eat any of its audience up it really wouldn't get another there wouldn't be another blockbuster of that sort until really and i I feel kind of hard-pressed to call this a blockbuster would be kung fu panda 3 which came out at the end of january and the next really full-fledged like tentpole blockbuster that you would think of in the conventional sense wasn't until deadpool which came out february 12 2016 
with that all being said, the conclusion is is that The Force Awakens, more or less, between just the cultural momentum of having the three original leads of Star Wars coming back, a new era of Star Wars, a film that played to everybody's nostalgia, played it safe, had no sharp edges. There's no reason why The Force Awakens couldn't play to the stratosphere of the box office realm. Like, there's no reason why. It just, it ran unimpeded until eventually just ran out of steam. But, with that being said, let's look at 2017's box office arena for Star Wars The Last Jedi. Star Wars The Last Jedi opened at $220 million, which was the second highest grossing opening weekend ever behind only The Force Awakens up until that time. The Last Jedi is number fourth behind only Endgame, Infinity War, and The Force Awakens. The Last Jedi opens... On December 15th, it has really no competition at that point. Has really only leftovers like Coco, Justice League, Daddy's Home 2, uh, animated film Ferdinand, which I think is John Cena playing a bull. Maybe. If that is the thing that I just said. But guess what? Hollywood was getting brave. And next weekend, threw some competition at The Last Jedi with Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, Pitch Perfect 3. And the greatest showman. And you might be wondering, Zach, Jumanji, Pitch Perfect, the greatest showman, come on. Like, that's not competition for Star Wars. And oh boy, folks, if there's any reason why The Last Jedi did not make more money in the US, and again, I can't speak to worldwide, it's because of Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, and the greatest showman. Because Jumanji opened on December 22nd to $36 million. Which is not great, but it's not horrible either. But, and possibly some of the greatest box office legs of all time, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle would end up with $400 million domestic. It only grossed less than 10% of its overall gross in its opening weekend. That is like unheard of legs. And for those of you who don't know the term legs... Box office legs are when a film can open and it has a lot of staying power. It just doesn't fizzle out immediately. Like one of the worst examples of box office legs is Friday the 13th, 2009, the remake. That film opened to $40 million and I think ended its box office run with about 60. It made the vast majority of its money opening weekend and just cratered. Box office legs too are also a way you can tell whether a film had good word of mouth or not. Something like Batman v Superman opened big and basically only had like 50% or had very limited legs because it only basically doubled its opening weekend gross. A good, like I said, a good way to indicate legs is seeing how, what kind of multiplier a film can have from its opening weekend until its final gross. In Jumanji's case, it had a practically a 10 time multiplier. That's unheard of. But this about par for good box office legs is making having your final domestic gross be three times your opening weekend. So if a film opens to $100 million and makes $300 million, that means it had about a par leggy run. And the higher a film opens, it's more understandable as to why it's not as leggy. Something like Avengers Endgame made $357 million opening weekend. And then topped out at 850. That is perfectly fine. Like obviously Disney's not licking its wounds over that. It's it's understandable. The higher a film opens, it kind of has nowhere else to go but down. Keep that in mind when we get back to the Last Jedi. 
And then, like I said, another reason why the last Jedi had had some problems was the Greatest Showman. The Greatest Showman was another example of a film having fantastic legs. In that, it had an even leggier hold than Jumanji. The Greatest Showman opened with eight million dollars. Eight, and it went on to gross a hundred and seventy-five million total. That is ridiculous. That is basically it made roughly around. 20 times its opening gross over the course of its domestic life. Incredible. Like, absolutely bonkers in box office terms. This ne- this very rarely happens, and it's rare for it to happen once per season. And by, I mean, like, like a holiday season. It's rare to have two films in the same corridor do this. Absolutely nuts. And that is partial the reason why The Last Jedi did not do as well as it could have in the U.S. And I'm not saying The Last Jedi did bad. Because, again, it opened at 220 and it made 620 Only about $40 million, what most people would consider par, considering that it had the second highest opening weekend of all time, falling about $40 million shy of a par run was, was understandable. So once again, Last Jedi, not a flop. Or not even bad box office. Like, it's solid, solid box office, if not great box office. But it had, a, it had competition. It had competition. Like I said, Force Awakens did not have a Jumanji or a Greatest Showman. Because one of the reasons why Jumanji and the Greatest Showman pulled audiences away from The Last Jedi was that Last Jedi was two and a half hours long. And I can't attest to this at every movie theater, but at least at my movie theater, there's 20 minutes of previews in front of every single movie. So if you were buying a ticket to go see... Last Jedi, and let's say it just started at three o'clock in the afternoon, you weren't getting out of that theater till at least around six o'clock or so. And guess what? Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, only had a runtime of two hours. So a two hours and 20 minutes with previews, basically 40 minutes shorter than The Last Jedi. So if you're a family, and considering that when a family decides to go to the movies, they're usually buying at least two to four tickets, maybe more depending on the size of the family. Parents are going to say, you know what? I do not want to have to sit there. My kids, you know what? They're going to get antsy. I don't want to have to sit in this theater any longer than I have to. Let's go for Jumanji. Never mind. I think it's fair to say, and even as I, a ardent last Jedi defender, would say, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, is a much more kids-friendly film than Last Jedi. But you're probably wondering, what does The Greatest Showman have to do with this? Well, The Greatest Showman became this weird sort of like phenomenon with teenagers, where again, the, like the soundtrack was like trending forever. It was like one of the highest downloaded soundtracks of all time on iTunes. It's, it's one, I think, one of the most streamed albums of all time on Spotify. It became a tour de force for teenagers. So guess what? If you're looking at Last Jedi's grosses and figure, huh, I wonder why this film didn't do three times its opening weekend. Well, there you go. Jumanji pulled away families and Grey Showman pulled away teenagers, which are two key demographics which are known to go into the same movie over and over and over again if there's nothing else to see or if it's just the, the hot topic thing. Again, Jumanji was one of those films that captured the zeitgeist. There is a rationale to why The Last Jedi didn't do as well as The Force Awakens, and not just for the reasons that every single person in the audience punched through their popcorn bucket and said, Not my Star Wars. Not my Luke Skywalker. Get this Jake Skywalker out of here. Moving on to the box office arena of December 2019. 
And keep in mind that I am recording this in July. Things could always change. Things always get sometimes things get rearranged on the box office uh, schedule or the the release schedule for movies coming out. So who knows what this will actually be the case come December? But it's actually rather interesting if we look at the Rise of Skywalker's competition come December. It actually has a very similar competition layout to what the Last Jedi went through because opening one week before the Rise of Skywalker is. Jumanji, the next level. And opening the day of The Rise of Skywalker, Cats, the film adaptation of everybody's favorite feline Broadway show. And I think it's fair to say, I think the Jumanji comparison from the first film to the second film is pretty easy. And I think it's fair to say that a Taylor Swift starring, I don't know who else is in the new Cats movie or in the new in the Cats, um, Taylor Swift, Jennifer Hudson, James Corden, Ian McKellen. Could be more people in that. I don't know. I'm just bringing off a box office mojo telling me. I think it's fair to say that that is probably, as of now, going to fare somewhat similarly, at least in a genre sense, to what The Greatest Showman did in December of 2017. So, I think it's fair to say that it'll be interesting to see with The Rise of Skywalker and how it fares against competition. Because The Rise of Skywalker, don't count it out yet, folks, has two things up its sleeve that neither The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi had. Well, maybe kind of The Last Jedi. One, it's the final film of the Star Wars saga. And for those of you who are around for The Revenge of the Sith, just pretend I didn't hear me say that. And two, and possibly the greatest weapon this film has in a marketing sense, they are essentially bringing Carrie Fisher back to life. If anybody was around and remembers the uh, the movie climate of the summer of 2008 and pretty much the first half of 2008, Warner Brothers absolutely whored out Heath Ledger in those seven months before The Dark Knight. They made the narrative around The Dark Knight was this is the film that killed Heath Ledger. And I remember that though because I think Rob remembers during that time period and. Sal, who if you listen to Cinemodies, you know who Sal is That it became almost sickening In things like Entertainment Weekly And a lot of the film blog sites That like that was the narrative Warner Brothers was spinning This was the film that killed Heath Ledger You need to see his final performance on the big screen Heck, that narrative got him an, A posthumous Oscar I don't think Disney's going to be as crass As Warner Brothers was with the death of Heath Ledger But I think they are Going to play up that aspect of Carrie Fisher In this Don't be surprised that come October, November, December There's going to be a bunch of 60 minute specials And a bunch of like news time Morning show programs about Oh, how, how, how they resurrected Carrie Fisher for her final On screen performance And that will be a big thing with the older audiences a lot of older fans who are gonna, who just if they did see the Force Awakens, and if they didn't like not the Star Wars, they will be drawn in with that. A lot of casual moviegoers are gonna be brought on by the fact that they they said it's like how they do Carrie Fisher. She wasn't at least she was alive for the Last Jedi stuff. She wasn't even around for any of this Rise of Skywalker nonsense. That will get butts in the seats into. The final film of any franchise that's at least touted as at the moment. Call it whatever you want now, whether it be Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 2 phenomena or Avengers Endgame phenomena. The last film or the presumed last film will always get seats, will always get butts into seats. It just will. And that kind of explains why Return of the Jedi and Revenge of the Sith both did better than the second films in the trilogies. So, 
I think I've done a pretty good job of laying out what the possible future may hold for the rise of Skywalker in a box office sense. And I think there is the, there's actually a third factor in this, which is always the giant wild card when it comes to any movie, not just a blockbuster, is if it's any good at all. Because if J.J. is able to stick the landing with this, if he's able to both reignite the nostalgia flame and he's able to make it, what's the word, connect to everything else in the Star Wars saga in a satisfying manner as they keep pressing that bullet point in all the interviews that Mark Hamill and any of the cast members give, if they're able to do it, heck, sky's the limit. But back to the question, I think I want to give out I think I want to give a shout out to Lars in the Facebook group because I think he asked me this question back like during the Avengers Endgame tsunami. And to answer your question, Lars, which was, do you think the Rise of Skywalker has any chance at beating Avengers Endgame? Internationally, no. Not Snowball's chance in hell because... China does not like Star Wars. And unfortunately, you cannot become the highest grossing film of all time internationally unless you have China on board. And considering that China truly is having a law of diminishing returns with every single, considering that China is having diminished returns with every Star Wars film going from Force Awakens, Rogue One, Last Jedi, I don't even know if Solo made it out in China. No, it will not be the highest grossing film internationally if i had to guess off the top of my head internationally and like i said i don't like doing this but i'm gonna do it anyway just to say i did everything at once when it comes to recording this dumb episode i'm gonna say i could see rise of skywalker doing around like 1.8 uh give myself a wide range let's say 1.7 to 1.9 billion i don't think it's gonna get past force awakens i don't think so but I, I think it's not getting to two billion. I just I, I think Force Awakens was this weird lightning in a bottle for the cultural zeitgeist of having the original three actors back. You ain't getting that again, even with uh, them bringing Carrie Fisher back to life with excise footage. But answering the second component of Lars's question for domestic U.S., I think it's possible. I think it was on an episode of Pawn Stars once where I think Chumley or I forget whatever the son's name is bought something Star Wars related and Rick was yelling at them saying, how could you spend this money, so much money on this one thing? And it made something I think like three or four times what they paid for it. And the son turned around to Rick and said, never underestimate Star Wars. And boy, is that a true statement. If there ever is a movie that can beat anything else in the U.S., it's Star Wars. North Americans, and I, I say I say U.S., I mean North Americans in general when it comes to domestic box office. Star Wars is that one thing. Star Wars has the there's a, Star Wars will always be more or less a North American brand. Yes, of course the world loves Star Wars. I'm not saying that though, but North Americans know how to turn on the heat when it comes to Star Wars. And I'd say it's an uphill battle. I do not think the Rise of Skywalker can even. It's gonna be difficult for it to top Avengers Endgame. Never mind topping The Force Awakens. But if JJ, like I said, is able to stick that landing. It is, it's possible. It's doable. It's definitely within the realm of possibility. I could, I could see it happening. And if they are, and like I've already prophesied many times on here, if you do get a scene of Luke Skywalker doing with all these man babies, because there is, there is an aspect too when it comes to the fandom. Because, and that's a weird thing too. I, I'll probably get into this in a couple of weeks because we are going to do an episode talking about the weird sort of like backlash there is to Galaxy's Edge, which 
I saw coming, but nobody else did. Once again, folks, if you listen to if you listen to this podcast, you're on the cutting edge when it comes to uh, Star Wars news and just understanding what's coming down the line went with all these movies and content. But um, I do want to get an aspect of that with Star the Star Wars and its relationship to the media. But there is the aspect too that it's kind of like what happened with the Last Jedi. Last Jedi came out and had like a 90, I think it still does have like a 90 something on Rotten Tomatoes. And then all the usual outlets that were positive about Star Wars up until that point, the ones that were glowing about how Force Awakens was the true rebirth of Star Wars and how Rogue One was a fine addition to the Star Walk or, or to the Star Wars saga and the Star Wars legacy. And then they all were positive when before the film got released. And then when Not My Star Wars got started, they all slowly turned 180 degrees. And some of them became more vocal than others in their left turn of criticism for The Last Jedi. And other ones, for the most part, don't hate it, but they'll say, it wasn't great, but I didn't hate it either. And then you look back to their reviews, like December 10th of 2017, and they gave it a four-star four review. But there is that aspect of The Rise of Skywalker. JJ knows how to schmooze the press. He knows how to get under their skin in the best way possible and push all the buttons that make them say, even if they don't particularly like the film, just make them schmooze and just, oh, oh, JJ. That's, he knows how to do that. Ryan Johnson doesn't. And that's one thing I'll take. Ryan Johnson doesn't know the game like JJ does, because obviously JJ's been in the game much longer and has mentors like Spielberg and, and Frank Marshall, the people who know that industry quite well. So there's that too. JJ can man- manipulate the media. So there's that angle too. There's a lot. There's a lot. Everything for the most part is trending in favor of the rise of Skywalker. The only thing I could see there being a lot of clickbait articles. And again, I'm not talking about the bizarre stupid on YouTube. I'm not, YouTube's a lost cause, folks. People are making money off hate screwing the last Jedi. There's no convincing them otherwise. But for things like variety, Newsweek, Washington Post, they're going to start off with spin like, can Rise of Skywalker recover, or can the Rise of Skywalker help Star Wars over the bump, or something like that, or help recover the, the, the forgotten glory of Star Wars? Because then if Rise of Skywalker is a triumph, they can write all these stories being like, oh, it's, it's the comeback kid. The only thing that does concern me, and I know I'm getting really far into the weeds here, and if any of this has made sense, this certainly won't, or at least you have to be a little bit more on board with this. And I think I've mentioned it before when it comes to Disney. Disney very obviously has different tiers of marketing teams. And once again, this is not me reading an article. This is my own just perception and just analysis from a distance with my own background in marketing. In that, look at how they marketed Avengers Infinity War versus Solo A Star Wars Story. I'm not talking about release dates. I'm not talking about behind-the-scenes drama. I'm talking about just marketing. Infinity War, which again, Infinity War was like selling lemonade on a hot summer's day. It didn't need to be sold. Pretty much you just put it out there and it'll disappear in five minutes. Disney knocked it out of the park with Infinity War. They hit all the they hit they put all their marketing materials, all their ads, all their stuff in the right slots, and it paid off handsomely for them. Solo possibly has the worst marketing campaign I can think of for a Disney film since John Carter. 
if anybody remembers the marketing campaign for John Carter, just go look at that first trailer for the John Carter movie, and you'll see that they didn't even change like the the, the logo of that film because it still says JCM for its original t- title, John Carter of Mars, because that's what it was its original title. And the only reason why they took the word Mars off was because Mars needs mom bombed, and they said, "Oh crap, nobody likes movies that involve Mars. That's why Mars needs mom." Mom's bombed. Not because it was a weird, creepy ass animated movie. It's because Mars. The public doesn't like Mars. So, with that being said, and this is what my concern is when it comes to Disney and marketing. Very similarly to what happened with Disney having two mega, super duper tent poles being released within like a couple weeks of each other during April and May of 2018, something very similarly is happening in November, December 2019. Frozen 2, Freeze Harder, comes out November something 2019. Very toward the tail end. I think it's like near Thanksgiving time. And then a month later is The Rise of Skywalker. The the A-team of Disney marketing cannot do both at once. Whoever's in charge of the marketing, I would imagine it's Alan Horn or one of his his subordinates, Alan Horn being the chairman of the Disney Studios. He's Kathleen Kennedy's boss. He's Kevin Feige's boss. He's Pete Doctor's boss, who's the head of Pixar. He's their boss. Kathleen Kennedy, unfortunately, to say for some of you folks, does not have unilateral say over what Star Wars and what the films do. So I don't know what Disney's going to do. Is Disney going to give Frozen the A-level marketing team, or are they going to give it to the Rise of Skywalker? And knowing how Frozen, I think, has made them more money merchandise-wise in the last few years than Star Wars has, I'm inclined to believe that they'll give Frozen that. Because Frozen had a really good film out of the gate. And they're now going to be marketing that. Think about it. Frozen came out six years ago. A lot of the little girls who saw that film seven times in theaters are now teenagers. Will they probably see that film again? Sure. But... The same audience that made that like a billion dollar film are no longer little little kids. And I don't like to see that. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that Frozen only got that way because of little girls. It's for children in general. But those children that made that film a billion dollar one ain't kids anymore. They're teenagers. So they have to now convince teenagers and a whole new crop of little ones back into the theater again. Whereas The Rise of Skywalker is locked more or less for a two hundred million dollar opening weekend. And plus, if they fumble Frozen 2, there goes a money revenue stream with merchandise and Lord knows what else that could be cut off if they fumble that too early. Rise of Skywalker, will, Rise of Skywalker, whether it's great or horrible, is not going to hurt the franchise in any meaningful way. No more so than the narrative around The Last Jedi has, or Solo for that matter. So that's just another element in this you have to keep in mind. Remember, folks, when it comes to these movies, it's not just simply – like if you are – I know there's a lot of idiots out there that like – we're like, this is my 87th ticket to Endgame. Hashtag whatever it takes. Hashtag love you 3000. It's like, folks, whether you buy one ticket or a hundred tickets, it ain't making a dent in the movie, box office-wise. It's 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 not even a drop of water in the bucket of these films. But these sort of decisions, whether Disney puts the A-level marketing team on it or not, will make a difference. With all that being said, folks, I hope I laid out how The Rise of Skywalker will perform and what factors I see being behind what will either have it soar through the atmosphere or have it plunge into the deep oceans of Camino. I hope it made sense. I hope you appreciate this episode. I know a lot of people like it. When we do uh, numbers episodes. If you didn't get that, it scratched from the fandom survey episode. I hope this did it. And you never want to hear box office numbers again, because 
after the Rise of Skywalker opens, we won't have another box office scenario to talk about until the 2022 film, which I would imagine by the time anybody's whether this podcast is still there, I imagine most of you have moved on to hopefully bigger and better pastures. So, with that being said, so concludes this episode of the Knights of Vader, a Star Wars podcast. Check out the Facebook group, type in Knights of Vader in the Facebook, and chances are you'll find it. Find us on Instagram, at KOV Podcast, and send us an email at kovpodcast at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you're currently listening to us on. Thank you to An Inspiriority Complex for providing our theme song. Check out the show notes to hear more from them. For questions, comments, concerns, or snide remarks, or if you want to tell me how wrong I am when it comes to box office prognostication or how none of this made sense, contact me, Zach, on Twitter, at Cinemodies. And you can also hear me on the Cinemodies podcast, where we'll be discussing The Amanda Show, starring Amanda Bynes pre her Drake Murder My Vagina Days. And you can also find Zenger on the Zeng This podcast where I'm pretty sure by the time you're hearing this, you'll have a new episode out, which I think is on Avengers Endgame again. But the week prior, I and Zenger were talking about Spider-Man Far From Home. So if you want to hear more Zenger and Zach, check out that episode of Zeng This. And with that being said, folks, good night, but not goodbye.